Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Thank you, Joseph, and welcome everyone. It's Casey Cover, your host on Training with Casey. And tonight, let's talk about connection and a right way of being with others. So I don't know, this one's going to be maybe a little wild, but we need to be honest about things. I'm in a membership uh, site with Dr. Jeff Tucker, equine advocate. I, it's equine dentistry and equine advocate. And today we were talking about our connections with our animals. And I can tell you that Dr. Tucker has an amazing ability to connect with the animals. And every movement is a communication. So what I mean is he comes in and files the horse's teeth, and he doesn't use a speculum. He doesn't even tie them any place. He certainly doesn't tie them to the rafters. He doesn't use one of those head cradles, you know, with the post. No sedation, no anesthesia. The first time that I got my horse's teeth floated by him, We had four elderly horses and one was a cheeky pony that I don't know how long it had been since he'd gotten his done. One was a female that was missing one eye. She was a very nice horse, but she hadn't done this in quite a while. The other one was a rescue horse that I tried to help his owner with before the, you know, floating that they call it teeth floating. For those of you that don't deal with horses and they have to get their teeth filed or they get sharp edges that will hurt and they will interfere with their ability to eat their food in a well. So this one woman had this rescue horse and I said, well, here are some things you can do with him before it's time for him to actually get his teeth filed that will help him, you know, adjust to it and do a good job at it and so forth. And she reported back, Casey, it's dangerous to get near his mouth. He will not let me do it. So I said, okay, you know, we'll just see how it goes. So Dr. Tucker got there and within a minute or two of starting with each horse, The horse was literally asking him to continue. So what did he do? Well, he went in with Sarah and he filed just a little bit. And then he took the file out of her mouth and let her process it. And he and I talked during that time. Next thing you know, she's nuzzling him, interrupting like, excuse me. Could you please finish your filing? And he did. She welcomed it. And it was such a respectful process. Every movement he made was talking to the horse, in addition to the fact that he also explained things to her. The other two horses also went very smoothly. It takes less than half an hour per horse. What about that difficult, dangerous horse? This horse was very uh, elderly, and he'd had a tough life to begin with. Dr. Tucker went out and just talked to him for a minute. I got my camera, and when I returned, here is this horse that was too dangerous for the owner to get near his mouth, and he just had his hest his head leaning against Doc Tucker's chest. His eyes were closed. He was sighing deeply, and they were just standing there in connection. 
And then Dr. Tucker surprised me uh, fairly mildly because he turned to the owner and he said, this horse does not need to have his teeth done. I won't take your money. And, you know, he's fine as he is. Well, Dr. Tucker realized he was very close to the end of his life. He just didn't need to be bothered at all about his teeth. But the horse was so relieved. It was palpable. He just was so relieved. He was so appreciative. So, segue forward. Oh, by the way, if you want to get connected with these people, just message me or email me or even put a comment. Uh, you can comment on the uh, YouTube channel, Training with Casey. Uh, we're not sure why we can't comment every place. But anyway, comment there and I will be happy to connect you. Doc Tucker is not coming all over the U.S. like he has been, but his partner is. And he says she's amazing. I'm going to find out because Sarah and Affair get their teeth done uh, tomorrow. Yeah, so looking forward to that. Anyway, back to our original conversation. One of the other members on the group was describing her frustration with veterinarians that would not recognize, respect, and take her connection with her horse seriously. So animal people, you're, we're strange, right? You get in there and you spend all your free time with animals. And you just know when they're looking at something, you just look up and everybody is looking to see what it is in the distance. Nobody barked. Nobody meowed. Nobody made a ruckus. It's just that the group focus shifts. When you're walking together, it's just this great camaraderie. It's this hive mentality. We all feel connected and we're doing something together and there's great companionship in it. And as we spend that time with our animals, we get to experience them in a way that you don't experience if you don't spend a lot of deep connection time with them. So uh, one example from my life is I was teaching Sarah something on one day, and then the next day I was doing something else. But apparently she wanted me to know that she'd been thinking and rehearsing the other thing. So this led to a whole series of little kind of missteps because here I'm telling Sarah, oh, I get it. I get it. You want to be doing that, but I don't have that bridle, it was a bridle and a bit that she wanted to show me. I don't have that with me, but I knew she wanted to tell me. How did I know? I could feel it. It was tangible. I was frustrated because I wanted to do what we were doing, but I also wanted her to get a chance to show me. So I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have an idea. We could use a cotton lead rope where she could take the cotton lead rope in her mouth as she would a bit. So I get the cotton lead rope and she picks it up just like she should. And then she spits it out before I can even bridge her. I said, yeah, well, that's very good, but you got to keep it in your mouth longer. So she picks it up one, two, then she spits it out. And I go, You've got to keep it in your mouth until I tell you to drop it. And she just like gives me this cock of the head, grabs the rope again, picks it up way over my head. Rock, 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 rock. I say, good. And then she drops it. And I start to laugh. I thought she was so funny. Her sense of humor 
And I mean, she did it. She didn't want to do it. It was clearly under protest, but she did it. And I appreciated it so much. And I just thought she was so funny. So later on, I looked up this hysterical piece of video that I had been laughing. My mom was there uh, actually taking the video. She was laughing. Go back and look at the video. And it doesn't even really look like an event. What was missing? Why was this so funny to me when I lived through it and then barely perceivable when I go back and look at the video? And the fact is, is there is energy and connection that comes across when you're there in person that simply doesn't get picked up on the video. That's all there is to it. But this connection is so dramatic. And this lady with a connection with her horse just felt that it wasn't good to go for her particular horse on that particular event. And as a matter of fact, she canceled it. She paid a lot of money to cancel it. That's how uh, like she had integrity. She was like, if it's not right for my horse, I'm not going to do this, even if I have to pay for it. So she did pay for it. And then she said she went off to do something else in her car and they had a flat tire right off the bat. So they would have been trying to haul this horse in a trailer and he, the tire already had a nail in it, which nobody had found yet. So she was right. It wasn't going to be a good to go day for that particular thing. So I think she was right. And the vets were wrong. Although I appreciate the pressures on the veterinarians. They've got all these people wanting their time. It's expensive. Uh, they get things all set up for you and then you don't do it and they don't necessarily have the ability to fill your time, although they usually probably can. As I was thinking about these stories, I got all fired up. So let's talk about it. What was I fired up about? Well, it's kind of a couple of different layers. The first one is connection. When I was in the Netherlands once, a well-respected trainer, Twani Lucan, made a comment to me. She said, I can see that you're connecting with the animals. I felt naked when she said that. I said, really? How do you know? And she looked at me like, don't be silly. And she said, well, I can see the connection from your yellow chakra. I can see the golden cord going out to the animals. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I wasn't consciously aware of doing anything like that. But I am aware. I wasn't aware of sending out a yellow cord, but I was aware of connecting with the animals, with the people in the audience. More about that a little later. And Twani said, we need to teach the new people about this because it takes them too long to figure it out on their own. And I thought she was right. And so I swore in, I, I agreed to do that. So here I am, everybody talking about these things that I don't see talked about very often, very many places. And that is the importance of connecting and how we connect. So I have five things to keep in mind when you're connecting. The first is connect with respect. I would recommend that don't connect thinking, okay, do this, do this, do this. We've actually experimented with that and it has exactly the opposite effect that we want it to. 
I like to connect with deep respect and appreciation. Just connecting with that animal and marveling at what an amazing being it is, thanking it for coming into connection with me, kind of picturing the things we're going to do. Okay, so connect with respect. Second, the attitude is gratitude. Every interaction with an animal, I say hi to them, I address them by name directly, and I thank them. And you know what? Dr. Tucker said exactly the same thing. I thank them for being safe with me, for taking care of me, for helping me, for doing these things for me. I thank them for being there as part of my family, what a privilege it is, or for being my friend. They're not all in my family. So the attitude is gratitude. Try to live in a state of gratitude that's kind of just like winding my way through life, touching all these wonderful, beautiful things, and putting a moment of focus on each one as I go, you know, as I make that contact and then keep rotating around. Okay, so what's the third one? Express that gratitude out loud to everyone. Thank you for your service. So I talked about before that I do express it, but it's important to express it out loud. Number four is what our friend on the membership meeting did, stand firm. If there is something that's in the animal's best interest, don't do what's expedient. Do what's fair and right. Do what maintains your integrity with the animal. And then, of course, thanks to 20 Lucan, and why we're talking about this right now, teach others, teach your people, make them aware of it. I can't tell you how many times I have worked with dedicated owners, but also with professionals that found it very confusing when I told them to talk to their animals because they had been told repeatedly not to talk to their animals, that their animals weren't capable of understanding, that it would just confuse them, that they needed to be more, you know, professional and clean in their presentation. But I won't go into all the reasons why right now. That's for another podcast. But it is very important to talk to each animal. And we'll talk about that more in our next group. So this particular set of things, these five things, were on connection. So you connect with respect. The attitude is gratitude. You express that gratitude out loud to everyone. You stand firm on the, you know, you stand firm with your animal and you're honest with others. You teach others to have those outlooks. Now we're going to go to collaboration because that's what we're all about, right? And before we talk about seven points in collaboration, I'm going to segue here by talking about the fact that I buy a lot of classes myself. I go to conferences. I'm constantly trying to learn. To my surprise, over and over again, I don't care who I'm learning with. They teach me a lot of really good techniques. Very valuable, very well presented, very useful. And then I get there in person and I'll be told, whew, 
We're so glad we got you here because all those techniques are great, but your energy is the most important thing. And when you're here with us in person, we can demonstrate the energy that you need to have. Do you think that's scientific? Do you think that's strange? Do you think it's maybe true? Well, I already knew it was true. Because when you're working with exotic animals, there are some things you have to do, but you must keep your, your energies like the most important thing. And I'm going to talk to you about what I do to make sure my energy is correct. But there are days, and we all agreed that, uh, about this in our meeting, there are days when we are not good trainers and we should not be training. There are days where we're not up to doing you know, those fine demanding things, those you know, fine motor skills or reciting supercalifragilisticexpialidocious 20 times in a row, you know, we're just not on top of our game. So we need to recognize that. And if we're in that situation where we're compromised, we need to do something about it before we go in with those animals. So when you're going to go collaborate with animals, After you've done, you know, you've done your technical preparation and your managing preparation and checked with the scientists and any healers and, you know, even communicators that you're working with, before I go in to interface with that animal, first thing I do is meditate to clear my energy field. So you get to work and maybe you were running a little bit late and maybe you're worried about something. You do not want to take those toxins and expose your animals to those. So what do we do instead? What do I do? I'll just sit there and get quiet and breathe deeply and connect with those animals. In my mind, I will greet them with respect. I'll show them in pictures what is going to happen. I'll show them me smiling with delight just to be in their presence. I'll do that for a few minutes and you know how I'm ready, I know that I'm ready be sitting there and all of a sudden I'll just start to smile. Okay, game on. Let's go, guys. So I always meditate first. And that's critical if you're working with dolphins or primates, but really every animal, every animal deserves that respect. Okay, so when I'm collaborating, the second thing I do is explain everything. I explain it clearly in English. Now, the way I do things, you'll probably recall, I'm constantly teaching and testing vocabulary. But what if this is a new animal? What if I haven't had a chance to do that? What if it might be that this animal doesn't understand anything that I'm saying? I do it anyway. Research in neurology has shown that one of the most beneficial things we can do to help others cope with stress is to simply name what's going on. Don't tell them what to do or how to process it or you're being bad or you could be better. Just explain your tense. I'm relaxed. You can follow me. I will help you. Here's what we're going to do. 
There's going to be a needle. It's going to be an injection. It'll be in the back of your, the scruff of your neck. It'll take just an instant to get you ready. We need to relax you. Then we're going to show you the syringe. Then we're going to give the injection and you'll be done. Tell me when you're ready. All right, let's do it. Now, it literally takes us less than two minutes to prepare most animals for an injection, even if they've had a rough time with a past injection. It is simply amazing at how much it helps an animal when we clearly explain things to them. Now, while I explain it, I also picture the progression. So I'm visualizing how things are going to go. And while you're visualizing it, don't visualize the things you're afraid of. Visualize the best way it can go and how the animal is confident and the animal is mighty and the vet is outstanding and everything goes the best way it could possibly go. Now, we do it. And the animal gets the injection. Now it's time for number three. Thank the animal sincerely. Thank the vet. Thank yourself. Thank everybody. But it has to be sincere. Number four, if needed, apologize sincerely. I can't tell you how many times maybe I bump into the animal. Maybe I forget to say or do something. I'll just tell them, I'm sorry. Here's what I should have done. Let me try and do that better next time. Just apologize sincerely. Acknowledge when the thing went wrong because of you rather than because of them or because of just happenstance. It helps clarify things for the animals. Number five, be truthful. I don't sugarcoat anything. I don't tell an animal, oh, it's going to be okay. How do I know if it's going to be okay? It might be terrible. I can't control everything. Sometimes, Things are happening so fast and furiously. And I can't tell the animal what's going on because I don't know. But I tell them that as well. I say, okay, guys, we need to go. It's looking dicey. I don't know what's going on. But I'm here with you. Ready? Let's book. Now, I've already said this, but I want to actually single it out. I said, explain everything in words and in pictures. So let's just um, make that a sixth point. When you explain with words, also visualize in pictures what is going to happen. Not what could happen wrong, but the best outcome. And number seven is to universally be like this. Okay, so <laughs> some people are going to think that this isn't very scientific, but it's actually extremely scientific. And that is that all life is conscious. In fact, I think everything is conscious. I mean, come on. What is your memory on a computer? silicon crystallized silicon my sister is a scientist literally for a, you know her whole career she can pick up a rock and know the history of that rock just by picking it up where does she get that information is the rock somehow talking to her i mean she's so amazing at this she was in all these rock clubs and they would go out to things like quarries, you know, where the company was going to close the quarry down and they'll fill them up with water 
so nobody can fall down into the mine shafts. And sometimes before they did that, they would open them up to the uh, rock hunter people. I've got a special name, rock hounds. And my sister would just time after time head straight into the best of the best rocks. And it happened so frequently that it was embarrassing to her. And she would like give rocks away to everybody else. But I also had another experience with that because I worked one Christmas for a company that sold glassware and crystals. And being the nerd that I am, I was a little bored when I was standing there and I was you know, trying to see if I could tell the difference between these rocks. Having seen my sister be able to tell the whole history of the rock, certainly I should be able to tell where the rock was, right? Well, I could. I could, and I could tell which rock was which. For example, to me, amethyst felt cold and rose quartz felt warm. And I found out that often it was the opposite for men. So go figure. Well, anyway, I would stop people as they went by or if they, you know, have people stop and look at things. And I'd say, hey, have you ever tried to find, to to sense a crystal with your eyes closed? No, they hadn't. And so I'd say, well, come on over here. And you've got to keep your hands this far above the table and close your eyes. And I'll tell you when I'm ready. And what I would do is place the rocks and then let them try to find them with their eyes closed. And they could all do it. I would say 85% of the people found it right away. And this one man was really funny. He found it once. He found it twice. And then he goes, well, I'm not really sensing the crystal. And I said, really? Because how did you find it? And he goes, I read your mind. Like that was less of an amazing thing to say. But I did find that there was something I had to be careful about because most of the people seemed to sense the rocks differently. They could distinguish between the rocks just from their, let's say, electronic signature, their aura, whatever it was. And when I laid a rock out, when the next person came, I had to clean the field because otherwise they would get confused by the previous position. So you know how we leave fingerprints? Well, rocks leave some kind of trace also that these people could pick up on. So what I would do is when it when it was their turn, you know, when I was getting ready for the next person, I would take the rock that I was going to use and I would just kind of pass it back and forth over the entire area that they were going to search. And then I would quietly set that rock down, kind of like, you know, erasing everything, using a magnet to kind of, or rake, right? In a Zen garden. Yeah, that was necessary. So let's talk about scientific process, because even though I believe that we can sense things from rocks, I didn't just make a story about it. I didn't just say, well, I agree with these people and I think that's how it is. No, I said, if it's that way, I'll be able to do this thing. So let me go test it. So I did and I could sense the rocks. And by the way, I can't tell you how many rocks shows I went to and I would hear these ladies going, Mabel, Mabel, you can feel it. You can feel it. And Mabel says, what do you mean, Gertrude? You can feel the rocks. So they'd be like all these displays of rocks in little trays or boxes on these tables. And all these people would be closing their eyes and passing their hands over these right rocks. And Mabel said, Gertrude, I can feel it. I can feel it. So I go right behind him, right? I close my eyes. It's like, 
Mabel and Gertrude, I can feel it too, but let me get my hands back in my pocket. Yeah, people are going to think I'm weird. Okay, so science is a process of inquiry. Being scientific is having a habit of logically researching things. It is not glomming on to an ideology or an opinion because one thing you're going to find out as you study science earnestly is life is complicated. It can be a certain way over and over and over again and then all of a sudden not that way. So, you know, lately we have all this controversy over people being trans or people being gay or people being whatever they want to be or whatever they are. And some people will try to say something like there's only two genders. That is not biologically correct. And it's fascinating. I had no idea. There are 35 different ways that we know of that gender is affected it's affected by your XY chromosomes, but you can be a full-blown male and look like a pretty feminine woman if you cannot process um, androgen, right? So how confusing, right? Who do you think is most confused? The people that don't fit into the little slot. Anyway, we have to keep an open mind and just study what is. Science doesn't tell you what to believe. It gives you our best explanation to date for what is. What is trumps what you think it should be. So the scientific process is one of inquiry where you don't let real life get compromised by your opinions or theories. Real life is what trumps everything else. Uh, so I've actually been told that I'm not scientific. Really? You decide. I studied cell bio at the University of California at San Diego and I worked my way through school in various medical research labs. I also worked in a diving physiology lab. These were with some of the top scientists in the world. Dr. Jerry Coyman, Dr. Uh, Stuart Sell, Dr. S.P. Mazaratis. Um, oh man, the guy that figured out that diabetes is almost always reversible, Scott Grundy. I believe he was actually in charge of the metabolic campus of NIH for a while. Anyway, these are the people I worked with and for. And um, I started in biology and then also did immunology and metabolic and diving physiology. And I didn't finish my degree the first time around because I got a job training animals and that's what I wanted to do. But I did eventually finish my Bachelor of Science in Animal Science. And for the University of Maryland, one of my jobs was to review science papers. Ooh, did I irritate a lot of people because it's really arduous work and I didn't enjoy it, but I was kind of good at it and I have a memory. And so we would have these symposiums every week and people would, you know, talk about research and what was going on. And somebody would say, well, Hunter et al. said blah, blah, blah. And I would pop up and say, yes, but their sample size was such and such. And they had internal validity problems, blah, 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 blah. So that kind of, yeah, yeah, I was that kind of person. 
So once I uh, did all that, I also then got a master's in education and I studied deep sea oceanography and ethnobotany and research design. I have research design classes through the doctorate level. And I grew up in a scientific culture. My dad was a nuclear physicist and nuclear engineer, electronical engineer, electric engineer. Yeah, you get it, right? He worked with electricity, which by the way is my nemesis. I don't naturally have that ability. My sister is an environmental scientist. And I incidentally studied learning theory while I was UCSD, where the well-respected G.S. Reynolds reigned. And I learned on his primer on or primer on operant conditioning. So that's a really rigorous book if you haven't seen it. Not an easy start into operant conditioning. I had to master operant conditioning because I worked as a dolphin trainer. And it's all about shaping and operant conditioning. But fortunately for me, it became all about targeting. And then also about communication, effective communication. And so with all these, you know, issues, I had to perform proficiently in learning theory and operant conditioning. I got tested. You know, it was obvious if your timing was off and so forth, I was um, successful. But I didn't stop there. I added cognitive tools the name and explain explaining everything mental mapping teaching concepts these are so important oh my gosh it relieves so much uncertainty for the animals they have confidence in what we're about to do they're better prepared you know it's just absolutely amazing so i pause it with you that anybody that says that I'm not scientific, what they really mean is I don't subscribe to learning theory the same way they do. I have a broad scientific context that I've interweaved to help support my work, the effectiveness of my work. And I also read and study across many different disciplines. Because one of the crazy things about science is there's a lot of uh, isolation. So for example, remember the Japanese um, scientist that was studying the effect of praying over water, uh, what you thought about in the presence of water could change its structure of its snowflakes that it made. And yeah, I'm aware that there were some, uh, some issues with some of the research he did, but that he still produced a lot of really amazing results. But if you were a learning theory person, you wouldn't necessarily ever even know about his work. My father, being a physicist, we used to talk a lot about things like the uncertainty principle, where you knew with 95% probability what something would be doing, but you couldn't guarantee that it would be doing that, but you could say what it wouldn't be doing by virtue of its nature. So in other words, if your dog was at home, we know that 95% of the time when a dog's at home, he will sleep. But he could be up and getting into the garbage or tearing up the sofa at any instant. But we can pretty confidently say that by virtue of his nature, he will not be walking upside down on the ceiling. And we that's what we can say about the behavior of 
atomic particles also, which is what my dad studied. So I have kept up in operant conditioning, physics, biology, medicine, behavior, psych, animal science, veterinary medicine, addictive medicine, chaos theory, and even sometimes in ag engineering. I'm always just looking, oh, neurology, right? Neurobotany, medicine, uh, pharmacy, medications. There's so many ways that things intersect where we may find some really useful gems. For example, with a fair, I had all kinds of behavioral tools to help a fair, but I read across everything that I could think of and in ethnobotany sources, ethnobotany is the use of plants by people, I found goldenrod. And I found out that that was known to help relax horses. And within five days, it incredibly helped a fair. And my vet is really into, my main vet is really into uh, using herbs and so on where we can and it was a surprise to her. She hadn't heard about it either. So being scientific is dedicating yourself to a logical process of inquiry. And then, you know, studying your results and analyzing them and projecting how could that be useful? This is all the realm of real science. It is not about tooting one theory like learning theory. And as we study more broadly and see how other things intersect, we're going to become much stronger trainers. For example, um, I started reading about addiction medicine and we were having problems with animals like dogs getting aroused, zoo animals getting aroused. Why are they getting aroused? They would like to, they just like to bark. They would bark to hear themselves bark sometimes, or the animals would run around in little circles or whatever. Why? It was as if they were addicted to something that these processes would make available for them. And indeed, may be addicted to dopamine. And from reading in all these different sources, I was able to piece together ways to solve these problems. Please let me know where you are in this process. Do you, can you add to it for us? Can you share some of what you've done? and discovered, do you find it helpful to go over these things? Does it make you uncomfortable? Let me know, either you know, send me a note or put a comment in there. And let's talk about this more because your ability to connect with your animals is one of the things that makes training and being with animals so incredibly rewarding, but it also keeps you safer. That connection, you know, it's kind of like it, when you work as a waitress, you learn to say, coming up on your left, coming up on your right, right behind you, etc. So the other persons around you are always aware of where you are in this bubble that you're all working in. And it's the same thing with animals, but we do it, we do it verbally, but we also do it energetically just by connecting. And one final word about treating everything with respect. I'm just going to tell you that when I put things away in my house, I'm always saying to these quote unquote, I mean, what some people think are inanimate objects, thank you for your service. Thank you for surviving. Thank you for taking care of us. And if I bump into my chair, I say, excuse me, I'm sorry. 
I just, it's a good way of being and I extend it universally, just like I'm recommending you do. Hey, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you tuning into this podcast. I would sure love it if you help it to grow by telling your friends about it. If you can go wherever you listen to the podcast, if you go up to the uh, on Podomatic, it's up at the top in the middle and you can click follow. If you go on YouTube, you can leave comments and you can like it and share it. That just helps us so much. It helps us to get the word out to others because of those crazy algorithms that I don't understand the behavior of. Okay, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. And I look forward to next time. You take care. Thanks again. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.